Department of Education say we're going to have these free speech champions because, you know, we're worried that Black Lives Matter is, isn't allowing free speech. You know, come on, guys, these guys are rattled. They've come into this too late. They're trying to put off the lid on discussions around abolition and Black Lives Matter. Hang on, you know, you're too late. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantelle Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to episode one of the Surviving Society five-part collaboration with the Institute of Race Relations official journal, Race and Class. This collaboration is focused on the themes and contributions from their latest special issue titled Race, Mental Health and State Violence. The special issue covers the themes of the following. At a time when mental health is often contextualised from the structural violence experienced by the most vulnerable in society, this special issue of race and class shows how race, mental health and state violence intersect in places of detention and incarceration, on the street, in mental health institutions, in counter-extremism policies and in the home. In episode one of this collaboration, we are joined by Director of the Institute of Race Relations, Liz Fikiti. She has worked at the Institute since 1982. She writes and speaks extensively on aspects of contemporary racism and fascism, refugee rights, EU counter-radicalisation and anti-terrorism policies and Islamophobia across Europe. She is the author of A Suitable Enemy, Racism, Migration and Islamophobia in Europe and Europe's Fault Lines, Racism and the Rise of the Far Right. Today, Liz, you're going to talk to us about the history of the Institute today for approximately 50 minutes. I don't know how we're going to fill it all in, but we're going to try. Thank you so, so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Really happy to be here. Thank you for joining us, Liz. Like... Could you give a, a bit of background about Institute of Race Relations, like when it started and how you got into it? Yeah, it's a kind of fascinating history. It's a bit like a football match. It's a game of two halves, really, <laughs> because there was, the, you know, the first institute, uh, the old institute, which was set up in 1958. And then there was the, the new institute that came in 1972 with the new director, Sivanandan. I have to roll back and explain the differences between the the two institutes. And it's quite fascinating because it's it's almost like parallel, uh, parallel, the history of the Institute runs parallel to the history about how race relations or how race was conceived in this country. So in 1958, the Institute of Race Relations, which started out as a kind of subsidiary of Chatham House uh, set up in 1952. Uh, It became an independent organisation in 1958 and the people who set up the Institute of Race Relations were kind of almost like the lords of uh, humankind. In a way the old colonialists having to sort of regroup and rethink themselves in a post-colonial era. So when in 1958 you know, all around just before that, race relations was seen as a problem in Africa, in Asia. It was a problem for Britain in terms of how do they invest? How do they, uh, multinational companies, uh, invest in third world countries or developing countries, post-colonial countries? And the idea that, you know, race was a problem there because there were all these tribal conflicts, etc., So the people who set up the Institute of Race Relations or trustees were actually drawn from from business and also the kind of people who would have been colonial administrators in the past. So then 1958, race riots in Notting Hill and Nottingham. And suddenly there was an awareness that uh, race relations was an issue in the so-called mother country. Sivanandan uh, was actually employed in the Institute as a librarian. He started off, he was actually a refugee from Sri Lanka. He was Tamil. 
and so he came as a librarian and i think you know the, the people who run the place thought you know we'll, we'll sort of give him a leg up nice man quite intelligent but they didn't realize that um the strength of his politics and his feelings so gradually the staff of the institute i must uh, tell uh, listeners that I wasn't in the Institute at that time. I get a little bit nervous at this point because I don't want... <laughs> it's all love here. It's all love. Carry on, please. I wasn't there in, in 1958. So this is what I've sort of learned from Simonandon and also my friends and colleagues at the Institute. So basically the staff began to question the whole remit and the whole focus of the organisation. Many of them would be um, involved in uh, sort of work, community work outside their working day life at the Institute. But the whole struggle to change the Institute first started actually around the area of research. And I think that's really important for listeners now, particularly students and academics. Uh, the history of the Institute, that struggle with the Institute over research is something that is so relevant, I think, today and always, because most of the research or the research that was being carried out was policy oriented. It was about advising the government about race issues, whereas the staff wanted the organisation to focus on the issue of racism, uh, the issues, you know, 1958, we're talking about the colour bar, we're talking about racism in housing, education, special schools for, for black children. You know, we're beginning to see patterns around schooling as we develop around Asian kids being bussed out of areas because, you know, they'd say that there was a ratio of how many immigrant children were um, acceptable to have in a classroom. So the staff were, were responsive to this. They were linking up with people in the community. People in the community were coming to use the Institute of Race Relations Library. So there was a whole struggle around research. There was a, a struggle around how race relations was conceived. And in 1972, after a protracted struggle amongst the staff and the management, staff managed to take control of the Institute of Race Relations. And the new institute, the second institute, uh, was born. What you have to remember is that the institute, the first institute was actually in, in Mayfair. It was very, very well funded. It was influential in the terms of uh, how mainstream society understands influence. And, you know, when the Institute was taken over by the staff, it was a huge thing. I mean, it was seen as, you know, it was seen as a, as a coup, uh, written up in the newspapers as a sort of terrible moment, all these honourable sort of men kicked out and uh, the Institute starts again. So it was reduced. All the funding went... There was only three members of staff left, Jenny Bourne, Hazel Waters, who are still working with us. Jenny's now the um, editor of Race and Class um, with Hazel and Sophia Siddiqui, who's um, uh, our deputy editor. So three people left, not much money, transferred to a sort of dilapidated building in King's Cross, all started again. But the whole idea, the, the lesson from that struggle was that the new institute were not go was not going to do policy-oriented research, research that spoke to the government and the government's needs. It was going to do research, which might be much smaller scale, but spoke to the needs of the community. So uh, the kind of issues that, that, pe that we began to write about were school exclusions, policing, police harassment, housing, looking at the whole question of anti-racist materials for schools. So I came to the Institute in 1981. I have to say that I wasn't the sharpest knife in the pack. I wasn't very politically educated. I would say that I had an instinct towards being a bit bolshy, uh, but it wasn't a disciplined instinct. And I just to go back to the dilapidated building, I can really confirm from 1981, we're in a nicer building now, uh, thanks to the, the GLC who gave us a lot of help back in the 1990s, late 80s. Um, 
it was a really dilapidated building. Uh, we used to, I, I can't help just giving you these little um, little bits. My memory was there was a kind of basement bit. And actually, when it rained, had problems with the sewers and, and things like that. So I remember that we used to be downstairs and actually the, the old National Civil Liberties were in the bit at the top. But Seva used to be in the library upstairs. You know, a number of us were downstairs. And I mean, he didn't have sort of sophisticated intercom systems. So when he wanted us, he'd just sort of bang on the floor with his foot. So <laughs> we'd go upstairs. I mean, times were very, very different then in, 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 in the world. So 81, when I came in, it was uh, it was another period of, of ferment. I mean, it was uh, started to work there, I think, you know, round about the times of the 81 uprisings in this country, which were phenomenally important events. Uh, the first work that I did was around policing. And it's kind of interesting for me now because, you know, Chantal and Tissot mentioned that i sort of done quite a bit of the work on the far right in Europe. But where I started was with policing. I was um, involved myself in some of the police monitoring groups, which was such an important part of that period. And I'm really delighted to say that it's coming back. The kind of uh, monitoring groups that we had all around London in various parts of the country, which were responding to issues of police harassment, stop and search, targeting of black areas, meeting places. You know, we'll all obviously know about the mangrove. But there were so many other meeting places around the country that were being targeted by the police. So one of the first things that I did was I worked um, on the second version of a, a pamphlet called Policing Against Black People, which brought together hundreds of cases of uh, policing Issues, not just dealing with the African-Caribbean community, it was also dealing with the Asian community and the African community. I mean, I know this is a contested issue, especially for young people today. But in those days, there was a sort of understanding of black as a political colour and as a definition that could expand and include, you know, brown people, Asian people as well. Once we had money from the Greater London Council who supported us, I was doing a little briefing called Policing London, which sort of came out quite regularly, which uh, was a roundup of issues to do with policing. So when I said, you know, there were police monitoring groups, uh, we have the monitoring group, the Southall monitoring group, as it was in those days, you have the new monitoring project, you have community allowance for police accountability in Tower Hamlets, you have groups in South London, of course, you had Gallup groups uh, representing um, the gay community as well. And, um, you know, this was just uh, an incredible period. But I mean, I see this coming back now. Of course, we have Netpol, we have Northern Police Monitoring Group, we have Resistance Lab in Manchester, we have monitoring groups still going and, uh, you know, Stopwatch. There is a, a, an element where that infrastructure that was there in the 1980s has come back and is very strong today. And that's, you know, obviously at a period with, you know, Black Lives Matter, that's really, really important that there is that infrastructure. Thank you so much for that summary there, Liz. It's incredible. It's mad. It is, isn't it? In my head, I'm doing like a kind of linear chronological line. So I'm thinking like minor strike, Thatcher and all these things in my head. I'm trying to line it all up. Yes, and also Tissa, the, the minor strike was very, very important because, first of all, a lot of black communities supported the miners mm -hmm. and it was a moment where you had a unity and an understanding between white working class communities and, and black working class communities. You know, of course, we've all seen sort of pride, you know, the stuff about the gay community support the miners. So it was an incredible period in that respect. But it was also very, very important for the development of policing against black communities mm -hmm. because the the methods used for policing the pickets and policing the miners were then brought back and used against, you know, black protest in this country. And I mean, one of my formative experiences, and I, I tell this story, which is an embarrassing story for me, which you learn a very important lesson as a, as a young woman, was that... Uh, at the time of the very important self-defence campaigns uh, that were emerging, particularly in the Asian community, in Bradford, in Newham, Newham 7, Newham 8, 
uh, new mate being school children who were older children taking her home younger children from school and then ended get, getting up arrested by the police. But there were very, very big demonstrations in Newham, you know, thousands, two thousands of people. People came from all around the country, but the whole community came out. I mean, you and very, very striking the, the mothers, the Asian mothers leading the, the demonstrations. And I mean, in one incident that I remember very, very, it's one of my formative experience was we were stopped outside Forest Gates Police Station. The police got quite aggressive, but all the district support units were actually um, waiting in the, the side streets. And we had a sit down protest. And then when they decided they wanted to clear the protest, they they sort of charged in almost in a sort of military formation and split the crowd. And uh, that was tactics from the miners' uh, strike. And as uh, so my great lesson then was uh, was wearing a skirt with buttons all up the front. And literally in that moment when the police, you know, dragging us by our hair and everything, all the buttons of my skirt got ripped off, oh. except for the two at the top, thankfully. <laughs> so my honour was saved. But the lesson is be very careful about what you wear on the demonstration. Was that tactic that they were, they were using, was it called kettling? No, that wasn't kettling. Kettling came later. Kettling is, is a containment strategy. This was a... Uh, a strategy to sort of break up a demonstration by using a line of police as a wedge to sort of almost like drive through the centre of a protest and and and, and force you um, physically force you off off the streets. So public order policing changed mm-hmm. um, after the miners' strike. Um, yeah, it's so fascinating important inspiring having people like yourself on the show Liz because it really reminds us how important these very recent histories are to where we are now and thinking about the urgencies of the 80s or the late 70s and 80s and Thatcherism and thinking about how that maps onto what we're experiencing now and what we've experienced over the last 10 years. Like some of the similarities are just so stark and it's almost like they're not just similarities, they're continuations or they're evolutions of what we've been fighting for a long time now, what people have been fighting for a long time. I think that there is there's a kind of I know I'm I I can sometimes do this um well I do it a lot actually sort of romanticizing those periods of solidarity but equally we need to grab hold of those periods and those moments and that time because there's so much that can be learned from it but equally we can learn from things that went right and things that went wrong which is where sometimes I feel like the conversations and the discourses can get a bit a bit lost but moving towards the contemporary and the historical is I'm I'm thinking more about the institute and how you were at the sort of heart of so many urgent issues housing racism policing the mobilization of certain sort of class subjectivities within the 80s as well and how that sort of continued now like that sort of neoliberalism that sort of individualism what what you're fighting is not just a it's not just something which was in the political realm or with it perpetuated by the state it's something that sort of enters into the home it's such a hard thing to fight and I feel like we haven't stopped fighting that now so sort of talking about the fight of ideology but also the fight against the state's repression as well it's very very challenging but as you were speaking it it made me because you were sort of saying but what was the role of the institute in all this and 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 it sort of made me kind of almost like think about trying to reflect on why the institute survived in a sense because obviously 1972 is is a is a long time ago i mean it was long before many of the listeners to this program were born so it's actually it's quite extraordinary that we've managed to keep going and that's it's it's not a guarantee you know it's not a guarantee that we'll keep going forever because it's a constant battle to get sort of funding but that's where race and class comes in as well because you know race and class gives us it gives us an income so it helps us to keep going without applying to funds 
just to be clear to the listeners yeah. Liz is talking about race and class the journal which the is journal. part of the institute yeah. yeah but what I wanted to say and to make clear was that the institute never tried to lead we didn't see ourselves as an organization that was trying to say we are the most authoritative uh, anti-racist organization in the country everybody's got to follow our line we were very very always had a kind of almost well I mean it comes from 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 Siva, Sivananda and Siva as he was known to his friends who'd who'd always say and um perhaps also in response to the kind of uh, the political left who 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 always want to lead and always have a line and we've all got to get behind their line. We don't have a line, we have principles, we have political principles. We don't lead, we're not there to lead. The Institute was never considered itself or tried to be a grassroots organisation. It was more what Siva used to say that we were a servicing station. Like our job was to be like a petrol station that puts tanks into, puts petrols into people's tanks to give them more uh, strength to sort of challenge the system and the, you know, the state, as Chantel uh, mentioned, the state, um, which sometimes I think in recent years has got lost in our critiques because, you know, in the 1980s, we would talk about state racism, whereas um, I think up to quite recently, the focus was on institutional racism, which is important. But if you don't understand where the state and where law comes in, in defining that institutional racism, your your struggle does get sort of smaller to a certain extent. So I think this idea of that we were there to service is important. And we we very much try to keep to that in ethos almost to bridge the gap between sometimes um, the academy and the, the streets because knowledge is also about the question of what knowledge is and I mean I always say this to sort of new staff members that don't just get your knowledge from books books are important learning is important but you know read the newspapers uh, read alternative source sources but most importantly observe your environment bring your observations into into your writing there is a sense that the institute is also trying to say that there is a knowledge base that comes out of struggle that comes out of also the works of civil society ngos and community groups and they they also have knowledge they also have pedagogy they also have theory of, of knowledge and the most important thing the most dynamic thing is when the knowledge of scholarship and when the knowledge of activists comes together which is why for our journal race and class which is a journal on empire racism and globalization the kind of people that we want to attract as writers are mostly what we would call scholar activists people who have a practice and a learning as scholars but also have a practice and learning as activists or people who contribute to activism and i suppose at the bottom line that's the unity between theory and practice I i'm speechless man like this is another real one <laughs> I need to just big up Josh Rivers for bringing you on to Busy Being Black podcast. Josh, <laughs> thank you for bringing Liz on your podcast because I've obviously read a lot of your work, Liz, but I hadn't necessarily heard you speak before and you are just amazing. No, it, it's, very, it's very succinct and very like it's concise and I think it's important that the idea of meeting theory and the practice, especially being academia, I mean, Chantal, ourselves, one of the big things is the academics, they kind of live in their own bubble and they're doing important work sometimes, but it's not reaching the people. This is where I feel that gap that you spoke about between the, the activists, Scott activists, they, that's the gap they need to fill. It's, it's very important. So, sorry, just a little bit sort of um, going a bit sort of red and shy there because of all the <laughs> nice things that you said. So momentarily, I was speechless. You spoke about activism coming back, these structures coming back. So in its long history, has there been a lull? Has something been stepped away for you to say something's come back? The activism in the early 80s and then was there a wane and then it comes back in the, in the late, late 90s? I'm, I'm not too sure. 
So we had Paul Gilroy on the show, we had Stella Dapsy on the show, we had Leila Hassan Howe on the show. And one of the things that they they were sort of talking about was this kind of lull that Tisa is referring to, where we had a lot of anti-racist and or scholar activists that sort of move on to the professional classes and or become part of institutions and work more in government policy. I think some of it, some of it is intended to be a sort of thoughtful um, critique on that. But equally, it's just kind of what happened, like things changed things became a bit more professionalized in a way when I say things change I don't necessarily mean material conditions and or the things we're talking about with regards to state racism and the police for example but the actors or the prominent actors within some of our movements moved on. I mean I'd like to respond to that in two ways Um, one to sort of say where I think where I think things changed and where there was a lull, because there definitely was a lull, but also then to sort of move on to say why I'm excited about the way in which things are coming back, because I think the way in things which are coming back now also address the weaknesses of our movements in the 1980s and 1990s, because there were mistakes, there were issues I think where we were not reflective enough as human beings about the organizations that we were creating and, and the, the maybe the sort of power within those organizations. So so to answer the first bit of the question first, um, you know, okay, if we go back to uh Sivanandan's writing, uh Sivanandan saw the, the state's response to the uprisings of 81 and 85 as crucial in breaking down of what was a unified black working class, black and Asian, if you like, working class struggle. Unified in terms of, you know, we're not, we're not romanticising this. We're not saying that in everyday life everything was fantastic, but in political activism there was there was some sort of unity between black and Asian communities around around struggles. So I think it was really under Margaret Thatcher, Simon Andrew wrote about this uh, analytically. Obviously, other writers did. Stuart Hall was very, very important as well. That he would say that Thatcher was actually very um, acute. It's kind of interesting sort of looking back at Thatcher and comparing Cameron and May and, and Johnson um, because although, you know, as much as, um, uh, you know, Thatcher was responsible for a great deal of harm, she had a she had a purpose and a design in what she did. So she was very, very, very clear after 81 and 85, they began to deal with what they would not obviously acknowledge racism, that there was structural racism in the society, the conservatives, Thatcherite government. But what they would say, there was ethnic disadvantage. They would say that, you know, but ethnic disadvantage sort of, you know, can almost work, work um, into a way of sort of almost like saying that there were sort of cultural deficiencies within the, the different minority communities but my answer was money urban aid um supporting black businesses creating a a much more professional middle class so in a sense i think we've become a little bit more like the united states in terms of the kind of um yeah, what, what Chantel described as sort of sort of professionalization, creation of a middle class, all these things. But at the same time, again, you know, you can't sort of be romantic about these things. Uh, Simon Anderson always used to say that you need people in the system to fight the system. But in the process, one in five, five people get corrupted. That was one of his, his, you know, he's got all these wonderful aphorisms that people are really sort of waking up to now and they love. Um so, so yeah, this happened. It was the way things uh, progressed. But then I think what we had was, since the Thatcherite period, uh, a neoliberalism, really. Like, I would say that you have the rise of, of very radical, ind- radical individualism. It's kind of almost like it happens in two ways, but society under neoliberalism, like neoliberalism is basically a, a project dismantle the welfare state, privatise state assets. But it had this veneer 
of being there for the meritocracy, to encourage a meritocracy, the idea that the talented can float to the top. But at the same time, society was actually moving in such a way that social mobility now is next to non-existence. There is no social mobility. You get the notion that individuals and, you know, this is a, a society for the individual. But at the same time, the poorer sections of society, mostly sort of um, from black migrant refugee communities, were being held in place, structured at the bottom of society. And, you know, again, it's one of those sayings that come out of the, um, the liberation struggles in, in Africa. The purpose of education is to return your education to the people. So if you have the creation of the sort of middle class, whether it is white working class people who become integrated and do well in the system or black working class people who forget the problems of the societies they come from, then that's a kind of breakdown. So I think there was an individualism that created a lull in the struggle and also the fact that the multicultural working class were, were left behind. So it was harder for a sort of leadership voice to emerge out of that community. Now, the leadership voice in the 80s and the 90s had been a black and Asian working class leadership voice. So in a way, I see this as sometimes a problem with academia now, in a sense, but kind of sort of a tendency that I am a little bit sort of critical of or we are at the Institute a little bit critical of is that you can sort of have a kind of academic voice that that tends to lead and not serve or to be almost like obsessed with the theory so I mean we all face this in our writing I mean I, I faced it in my writing you get influenced by somebody who has very profound thoughts um but, you know, you have to use other writers as building blocks towards your own ideas. And and you also have to be interested in other people's ideas, not just your own. So and then sometimes I think, you know, in academia, there is a sort of tendency for sort of, you know, people to want to be crowned the next sort of theoretician, the next Marx, if you like. So you kind of I think this was the lull, the whole question of individualism. You know, this whole question of individualism, the sense of uh, the neoliberalism penetrating actually the individual. So the individual is, pri is becomes primary over the collective has been a problem in the lull. So I think now we're coming back to a more collective approach. Uh, and I see, um, you know, a lot of really good things coming out of Black Lives Matter, uh, particularly, I think, the perspectives from the movement for Black Lives in the United States, which is different from, from Black Lives Matter as, as a whole. The movement for Black Lives, a very disciplined and radical response to the, you know, the global epidemic of police violence. So I think we have a sort of second shot now to sort of get it bit more perfect I mean we'll never be perfect I think what we can learn from the 80s and and the struggles in the 80s and 90s but actually we weren't particularly concerned about the individual it was the collective struggle that was important and you know there was tremendous burnout because of that you know if you are always sort of in this collective struggle and you you know, you're very serious and you're very disciplined, but you can also burn each other out and you can burn out or you can become um, careless about how you treat each other because, you know, you're, you know, we're not important. I'm not important. It's a struggle that's important. So you can become careless about how you treat each other. So what I like about what I perceive in uh, young people's struggles today is that they do care about each other more. A lovely title for your podcast, Surviving Society. I mean, really, that, that sums it up. There is a gentleness, a kindness there. But at the same time, there is also an excess, which, you know, we had an excess in the 80s towards too much discipline, too much sort of organisation. So we became careless of the individual. That was our excess. But there is, can be an excess, I think, in the movements today that can become very puritanical. 
if there's, you know, there is a puritanical strain, which then can become, I think, you know, almost like quite sadly, because of this instinct to care and look after people and be inclusive and not miss out somebody's oppression and experience, can then almost turn into a kind of a, a self-righteousness or a righteousness around people who fail those high standards. Um, and then we can end up sort of being quite hard and unforgiving towards them. I think that's the, the excess that we need to work on to make sure that our willingness to include doesn't blind us also from our need to educate and to bring people on and to differentiate between the person who makes a mistake out of ignorance or youthful enthusiasm or the fact that they've just been socially conditioned to understand a problem in a particular way and you know we're all on a journey none of us are perfect we're all learners it's such a profound way of putting it that sort of excess that you're talking about I think it's definitely something over the sort of past particularly over the past sort of six months we've been covering quite a lot on the podcast and this sort of our capacity and to take people with us in how we think about politics and how we think about how we organize um, and how we think about the past and I think you're right I think there can be an excess of caring for each other that can then mask itself as individualism but one of the things that I'm not mask itself can create a, a type another sort of form of individualism that you were talking about before but one of the things that I'm I'm kind of concerned about or have been for a while now is how we as political educators take people with us. And I feel like you were you were sort of referring to this before when you were talking about how Sivananden sort of positioned the Institute or spoke about the Institute as sort of separate from the left that says it that calls itself the leader. So I really worry about how those of us on the left or those of us that are looking to create more political education kind of talk down to people. And I sometimes feel like we do that in response to seeing that excess. It's like we have like sometimes we have like a sort of knee jerk reaction to seeing any traces of that individualism, which I don't necessarily think is wrong. But I think we kind of have to find different ways of showing people and or explaining to people where that excess of care or that excess of potentially dabbling with the individualism that isn't good for our movements can get us. And I sometimes feel like that can be disproportionately directed at people that are trying to reclaim some of that care for themselves and or the community that was previously not always prioritised. And here I'm talking about women. I'm talking about women of colour. I'm talking about black women. I've been more worried about recently is how we're taking people with us in a way that isn't sort of <sighs> dismissing people on the basis of them not necessarily fully understanding what mar Marxism is. <laughs> yeah, it's the whole question of the political culture. It's at the centre of this is the need to create a political culture out of which there is an understanding that each of us knows instinctively around how we deal with issues of um, of, of, of education. Uh, uh, and, and if our political culture is right, all these things will, will come right. But if our political culture is over-puritanical, over-disciplinarian or over-hierarchical, then the way that we treat the individual won't come right. Some of the things that I think come with what I call the excess um, or what Chantel is describing um, as almost as a, as a sort of judgmental attitude towards the person who gets things wrong, I think it sort of comes out of fear in a way. Yes. But we're so frightened of being contaminated by... Um, people who aren't inclusive or who have racist or sexist ideas that we we sort of almost like freeze up and um, have an uh, almost like not knowing that we're doing it we're 
almost like repeating the logic of power, which is to exclude and to marginalise. And this is a sort of central issue that I think we have to grapple with. We are living in an age where the state, state racism and state racism today is based on on creating cordon sanitaires um, and excluding I mean, we've seen this with, that's the whole purpose of the anti-terrorist laws and how it's impacted on the Muslim community. It's the whole basis of the policing strategy around gangs. And somehow, through our fear, we are replicating that. But also, we are not perhaps being critical enough you know, we talked about this with Josh um, on the busy being black, the, the whole idea of privilege. And yes, of course, there is white privilege, but there are also other sorts of privileges. There are the privileges that you have because you are secure economically within a system, um, which a person who is economically insecure doesn't have. But I remember once there was um, an initiative around prisons and doing sort of a big conference around prisons you know I'm of an older generation so I sometimes find the the level of you know when there is a sort of purist discussion I find it, it hard to be sort of within it and patient but you know we were talking about organizing this conference and the whole sort of political culture towards organizing this conference became so puritanical and there was no prisoners there there's no privilege, prisoners on these organising committees or families of prisoners. And I just thought, you know, you just have one prisoner walk in and speak in a language which was the language of their everyday speech. And that person would probably have been excluded from the conference. Um, and that was the irony of it. So, you know, sometimes our vocabulary and our language is also there and our uh, ability to be uh, tolerant and say, the, you know, not say the wrong thing. It's actually because of our education. Then the notion of, the, you know, the racism of the working class and the racism of the middle class, you know, the racism of the working classes, you know, I mean, Tissot saying how much he wants to talk about sort of the far right and fascism, you know, it's pretty, you know, deadly and, and awful. But the middle class are, are much more sort of um, have the ability to, to mask their racism and say all the right things. And this is one of the reasons why I think sort of at the Institute of Race Relations, following on from Stephen Anderson's work around racism awareness training, but we're very critical of unconscious bias training. Because, you know, I remember when Keir Starmer made his com comments around sort of Black Lives Matter and the defund and divest policy being sort of, you know, it's just rubbish. And then when he got criticised for that, he said, well, I'll go on an unconscious bias training course. And I thought, you know, you're just going to, you're not going to change the way you think. You I mean, you've been head of the, uh, you know, been director of public prosecutions. You think like a prosecutor, you, you know, you're going to go on an unconscious bias training. You're going to think exactly the same things, but you're just going to have the vocabulary to mask them. Liz, I, I thought it was quite interesting when you kind of talk about the excess I kind of thought of it a different way. Like that's our blind spots. So when you're actually in movement, that's our kind of, that's where we can't see when we're doing it. Just like when you were coming in the eighties, collectivism was your blind spot. And so you couldn't see. I think the only way we can kind of overcome this is that intergenerational conversation. Your critique of the movements now, you, you can see things that they can't or we can't see because we're actually in it and we're living it. That's the zeitgeist of the moment. The idea of like us being quite puritanical right now is, I guess, the way I'm thinking of it is like it's the historical conjuncture. So we're so far from those kind of puritanical ideas that kind of had a problem for Europe. We're so far from it now. But in the kind of immediate post-war period up into the 70s, people still have a, that's in living memory. People still have an idea or a horror of those puritanical ideas and what they did. But in 2021, it's a different flex. And you can see those ideas coming, creeping back, that puritanicalism. It's that historical juncture, especially in, in European terms. Well, young people don't take that so seriously. And it's that intergenerational conversation, I think, is, is needed to keep, keep both movements on their toes. So the older people speaking to the younger people, younger people speaking back to older people. And there, through that kind of dialectic, we can kind of address those issues and create that kind of political culture that takes care of the individual and doesn't lean to one excess or the other.
Yeah, it is so. That's exactly what I was trying to say. And, you know, you mentioned the blind spot. I mean, what is a blind spot? Something that we don't see because it's embedded in our normative vision. Mm. Um, and that's where the political culture comes in because the blind spot is embedded in the political culture that we've created of our times, whether it was as you say, the collectivist political culture or the caring political culture now, which is why people get frightened, I think. They get frightened of doing the wrong thing because the political culture that they're part of is is telling them that that's the wrong thing. So the basic thing is that as we move forward um, in this intergenerational discussion, which is, is happening, um, I mean, the fact that, you know, we're here today shows that it's happening. But it's so important that we focus on political culture and power, because, as I said, this is this is a this is such a great period. And what I feel at the moment, you know, up until, you know, the abolitionist um, movement around policing, came you know you're thinking oh god you know this is all a bit despairing but actually what you're seeing is the emergence of a, cal- a counterculture that that you know this dominant neoliberal culture is now threatened from all sides by a counterculture which is why when we're seeing you know last week the uh, you know heritage minister calling in all the you know the arts and uh, heritage bodies to discuss the way history is taught because they're worried about the decolonization movement or whether it comes with the Department of Education saying we're going to have these free speech champions because, you know, we're worried that Black Lives Matter isn't allowing free speech. You know, come on, guys, these guys are rattled. They've come into this too late. They're trying to put on the lid on discussions around abolition and Black Lives Matter. Hang on, you know, you're too late. It's, it's there, it's erupting. And because I look at things in the European context, it's not just here. France, even worse <laughs> than we are in terms of state repression of, of black people. Decolonialism, Portugal at the moment, stuff going on in Portugal is just phenomenal. And it's in all in the former colonial powers. France, Belgium, Spain, Portugal, the UK. There is an eruption happening in here and they're trying to put a lid on it and they can't. They're too late. That's my kind of feeling that they're too late. But going back to what you said at the start of the podcast with the two separate strands of the institute, colonial aspect, I kind of reflect that to what's happening quite now. So these guys are reacting, but they're reacting in the same way as the guys did in the 1950s. They're trying to kind of put fires out, but in a very state repressive repressive way and... It's a, it's a very similar top-down way. So they through education, through just repressing people. But again, just like with the colonial movement, they were always behind. Like this 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 movement started, and they can't stop it. They were trying to offset and control and contain decolonization, but they couldn't do yeah. it. The seed had been planted, or as Gary Young mm-hmm. said on the podcast more recently, there's been a pollination, and that's what I think Liz is talking about as well. There's a pollination. It's it's not complete. It's flawed. It's fragmented. But there is a pollination of of solidarities and counterculture which is emerging. And I think one of the this is a great way to end the show. I think, but one of the things that I mean. Tiso and I, I feel like we talk about this stuff day in day out um but it does give me a lot of hope because we're not going anywhere we're not going anywhere we're not going to stop talking about this stuff we're not going to stop pushing and it is it is the combination of intergenerational conversations but also the the way the information and ideas is able to spread now of course we've seen how detrimental that can be to things like democracy and what have you but ultimately when it comes to them just rattling the state as you say Liz like we're we're doing I think we're doing well. The climb is tremendous because the particular I mean just to talk about the UK and I like Tissot's comparison with the 1950s because um, I mean this government uh, they're thinking is 1950s it's majoritism you know white majority keeping minorities in their place. Yes, you know, assimilation. Of course, you know, you can integrate into the system as long as you're you're like us and say the same things like us. So it's very similar in the 1950s to the 1950s in terms of the Conservative Party's ideological way 
of a, of a government, let's say, an ideological way of looking at race. But the difference is that at the moment, as it, what I say is this is a period of a huge power grab. Not just, you know, we've seen it with the pandemic, with the whole question of the way contracts have been issued, um, with no accountability whatsoever, no checks and balances. We can see it in the way that they're trying to, um, uh, you know, they're trying to change, centralise the, the, the National Health Service, centralise the Education Service, but also their attacks on um, the judiciary and the checks and balances. Uh, I mean, they, they, they would like to abolish judicial review, all these things. So it's a massive power grab. So that's, that's, that's very, um, very, very alarming. But when we go to our counterculture, the counterculture that is emerging has to be based on fusion not separatism, it has to be a fusion because only a fusion can challenge power because what, I mean, I did a, a, a webinar uh, two weeks ago, I think, um, with Abolitionist Futures and Pluto Press on crimes of solidarity and they had uh, someone from the Stansted 15. And she was talking about what really rattled the authorities when they saw the people coming to the, the the demonstrations to support them were from all communities and that rattled them. So what fusion, the idea that people turn up in places where they would not normally be seen is really, really challenging to the system, which goes back to, you know, when we talked about the miners' strike and black people supporting the miners and gay people supporting the miners, never did they think that that sort of unity or that sort of fusion or that sort of solidarity would emerge. At the end of the day, solidarity, it's easy for me to feel solidarity with people like me. I could just be a white feminist working on white feminist issues. But that's not solidarity. That's looking after your own. Oh, or at the best, some sort of identity politics that tries to create reform and change for your particular group. Solidarity is being there with, with, with others. And that's the fusion and that's the counterculture we need. Such an inspiring, uplifting place to end, Liz. Thank you so much. And thank you for letting us do this Surviving Society Institute of Race Relations collaboration over the next five weeks. As we hope you enjoy. Thank you very much for, for having me. I've really enjoyed it. I've loved, I've loved talking to you both. Oh, thank you so much, Liz. Listeners, thank you for supporting us. Patrons, there's another episode for you now over on the Patreon. Thank you so much. And we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.